Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Oh, you guys are sounding more and more tired every time I ask that question. You guys feeling tired this morning? A little? I saw a few of you guys are still not sleeping. You're poor counselors. I'm sorry for them. But uh, you guys ready for a fun day today? Yeah, we got a good day ahead. You guys ready to jump into God's word this morning? Let's try that again. This is what we should be the most excited about. Here we go. You guys ready to jump into God's word this morning? There we go. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. That is where we're going to be at this morning. As you guys turn there, just a reminder of what we're talking about this week. We're setting out to answer the question, how can we live resilient in a culture that is increasingly more hostile towards Christianity? And so we've been looking at the example of Daniel and his friends uh, that they have set for us. What does it look like to be a young person? who has just resolved ourselves and decided for ourselves that we are going to live obedient to Christ. Now, as we wade through this conversation, there is one thing that we have to understand that links all of us as human beings. There is something that we all have in our lives that marks us and, and, and connects us, and it's something that we must surrender as we seek to live lives like Daniel and his friends. And that thing that we're going to be talking about today that marks all of our lives is this little thing called sin. Now, sin is not actually a little thing. It's a big thing. And we're going to kind of explore that this morning. And so what we're going to do today together is we're going to kind of deep dive the the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to look at at his life and some of these things that he seems to be struggling with to see how... uh, a lot of us find ourselves in very similar situation to King Nebuchadnezzar. So with that, let's pray together and then we're gonna jump in. Sound good? Cool. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you again for uh, this week and uh, man, just the privilege that it is to be here at Hume uh, and the opportunity that we have to connect with you and to deepen our relationship with you. So Father, this morning as we dive into the topic of sin, God, we're just asking that you would open our minds, that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts to see the reality of our sin in our lives. God, and that you would just draw us into yourself and remind us, man, that if we lay all those things at your feet, you're faithful to forgive us and heal us of all of our sins. And so, Father, we give you this morning. We're looking forward to what you have for us. In your name, amen. All right, here's my question. Have any of you guys ever heard the old, old story of how you catch a monkey? No? You guys ever heard that? No. Okay. So let me, let me tell you. So there's this old trick. If you ever find yourself in the jungle or somewhere in the Sahara Desert, the safaris of Africa, if you find yourself in a place and you are set out with the task to catch a monkey, there's a little trick that you can do to catch one. And here's what you do. You take some kind of a jar or a box or a coconut, and in that coconut, you would cut a small hole in the top of it, just big enough for a monkey to get its hand inside. And inside that coconut, you would put something that the monkey would want, like a banana or something shiny, something that a monkey brain would be really attracted to. And what happens to these monkeys is when they find the coconut with that thing inside, let's just call it a banana. When they find the coconut with a banana inside, that monkey will get its hand into there and it'll grab a hold of the banana. What the monkey fails to realize is that the hole is just big enough for it to get its hand into, but it's not big enough for it to get its hand out of while holding on to the banana. And what we see with these monkeys, kind of what the, the, how the story goes, is that the monkeys find themselves unwilling to let go of the banana inside the coconut 
basically rendering themselves stuck. And so now instead of having a monkey that is able just to run around, you got a monkey that is so unwilling to let go of that banana, it's dragging a coconut behind it, making it way easier to catch. So there you go. If you guys are ever stuck in the woods somewhere, or in the jungle somewhere, and you need to catch a monkey, get a coconut, cut a hole in it, put a banana in there, and boom, there you go. You're going to catch a monkey. Now, it sounds funny, right? And, and we would think about that story, and you would think like, why would the monkey not just let go of the banana to get its hand free from the coconut? We, and, and our, you know, super wise, really smart, 13, 14, 26-year-old brains were like, just let go of the banana and you can run free. Now, silly of an example as this is, I want you guys to realize that we are just like the monkeys. Though it may not be a banana in our life as something, as the thing that uh, ensnares us or traps us, we all have things that we hold on to really tightly that we are unable to let go of or unwilling to let go of. And essentially what happens due to our unwillingness to let go of certain things in our lives, we render ourselves trapped and stuck. And what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna look at the life of King Nebuchadnezzar and we're gonna see that him, just like us, we are all just like these monkeys who instead of just letting go of certain things to find freedom in life, we tend to enslave ourselves due to our unwillingness to let go. Now, there have been a few times so far in the book of Daniel uh, where we've seen Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming with his mouth that God is the king, right? This is kind of where we left off in our story last night. He'll even give decrees across his kingdom that everyone has to bow down and worship the one true God, the God of Daniel. But though he says these things with his mouth, what we see and what we're realizing through the story is that King Nebuchadnezzar is not actually doing the one thing that God has asked him to do. And that thing that God is, is constantly asking and inviting him to do is to surrender his life to the God who gave him that life in the first place. So we see this at the end of chapter three, right? Where we finished off last night, Nebuchadnezzar is praising God for protecting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. Uh, in fact, in verse 29 of chapter three, it says this. He says, therefore, I issue a decree that anyone or any people of any nation, language, who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb, his house will be made a garbage dump, and there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. And then the king rewards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, again, as we talk about this kind of flip-flopping that we see in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar, it's interesting that we can see him go from uh, demanding and commanding that everybody bows down to a statue to then literally, like in the blink of an eye, now he's commanding that everybody bows down to the one true God. And it seems like there's these big crazy shifts in the guy's life. But we're aware that there is still something missing. And again, that thing that is missing is King Nebuchadnezzar has remained unwilling to surrender his heart to the Lord. Now, I want to catch this up in Daniel chapter 4. So if you guys are open in your Bibles, you can go to chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to kind of give us a little bit of a 10,000 foot view of what's happening in the story so that we kind of know where we are at. At the beginning of chapter four, God comes to Nebuchadnezzar in another dream. And in this dream, what you guys need to realize is when God comes to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, uh, he's not just like making him have these weird dreams for no reason. He's trying to get a hold of his attention. And so God comes to Nebuchadnezzar in another dream 
He's reaching out to him, inviting him to surrender this idol that controls his life. And let's remember, the idol that controls Nebuchadnezzar's life is himself. Right? He wants to be the king of his own life. And what God is offering Nebuchadnezzar in exchange for his surrender is a real life, an abundant life, a life that is only available when we surrender to God. And so here's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. He dreams about this massive, strong, mighty tree, a tree whose branches stretch across the nations and the birds of the air use it to nest in and the animals of the earth use it to find shelter under. And in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees this tree and then he sees a holy one. And the text says that this holy one comes down from heaven and this angel declares that this tree must be cut down. And the angel goes on to say that all that will be left is the stump of the tree and that the stump will now live amongst the wild animals. And again, so you can imagine like the last dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, he's probably pretty troubled, right? He's a little bit anxious. The last time he had a dream, he called in all of his magicians and and spiritual advisors and all of these people, remember, and none of them could give him the answer. And then he wants to kill them all because none of them can give him the answer. And then Daniel shows up and gives him the answer. So this time, Nebuchadnezzar, he's he's getting a little bit smarter. We can give him a little bit of credit. So instead of going to all of his magicians and advisors, he just goes straight to Daniel. He brings Daniel in and he says, Daniel, I need you to tell me what this dream is all about. And here's Daniel's interpretation of the dream. He says, King, this tree that you dreamt of is you. He says, King, your power, you are great in strength and in might and in splendor. Your kingdom stretches over all kinds of territory. But he says, but king, God is going to come and he's going to humble you. He's going to cut you down. He's going to drive you out to live in the wilderness amongst the animals for seven years until you come to a place where you acknowledge that God is the ruler of all things. And you'll be in the wilderness until you surrender your heart to the Lord. And then in verse 27, what we see is that Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar a warning some encouragement, some advice. He says, you know what, King? This is what you've dreamt of. This is what the Lord is telling you, but it doesn't have to be this way. He says, there is something that you can do to save yourself. And in verse 27, Daniel says this. He says, therefore, may my advice seem good to you, King. He says, separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and separate yourself from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy and perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Well, something that I want you guys to note is this. Up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar's life has been stained by his sins. The marker of his life is his unwillingness to surrender to God. And the fact that he worships himself as his own king has stained his life. This is his sin against God. And this has been the theme that we see standing throughout the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what I want to do right now is I want to kind of deep dive into Nebuchadnezzar's life. Let's go back to the beginning of our story, and let's just kind of start picking apart Nebuchadnezzar's life and seeing what we can learn from him. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 2, right? This is the first time we see that God speaks to him through a dream. Daniel interprets it. We see God attempting to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, telling him that if he doesn't repent, like the crumbling of the statue, the crumbling of his kingdom will be great. Again, at the end of this interaction, Nebuchadnezzar praises God and acknowledges God, but again, we see that he doesn't fully surrender his heart. The outward expression is not reflective of what is truly happening on the inside of his life. 
Just four verses later, after he praises God in chapter three, verse one, we see that Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue and he starts demanding that everybody bows down to the statue. And what we see happens is that Daniel and his friends won't bow to this idolatrous statue. Nebuchadnezzar loses his cool, throws them into the furnace. God shows up in a mighty, crazy way and he saves them. And then we see Nebuchadnezzar going right back to praising God even this time giving a decree that everybody has to bow down or else they will be killed and their houses will be destroyed, right? It's clearly a pattern that we are seeing now in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He does his own thing. He makes a mess. God shows up in a big way to protect his people. And then Nebuchadnezzar thinks that what he's supposed to do is to praise God for it. Where we find ourselves in the story today is Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Daniel interprets it. He gives the king a warning that he needs to turn from his sinful life and his idolatry, and he needs to surrender his heart to God. And Daniel says, if you were to do this, there is something that would happen for you. He says, there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Essentially, what he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar is this. King, you have an opportunity to live a real life of abundance in relationship with God. And all you have to do is just like our little story about the monkeys, is you have to let go of the thing that you have been hanging on to for so long. And if you can let go of that one thing, King, God may bless you and allow you to continue ruling this kingdom. All you've gotta do is let go of your life. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament, going on to say, anyone who tries to save his life will ultimately lose it. But anyone who loses their life for his sake We'll find it. And so we find King Nebuchadnezzar faced at this crossroads. A life-altering decision is on the line and he has a choice to make. Will I continue living and worshiping the idol of myself? Or will he surrender his life to the Lord? Let's see what happens. In verse 28, it says, all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king exclaimed, is this not the great Babylon that I have created in my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? What did he choose? Did he choose to surrender to God or to worship himself? To worship himself, right? This is the decision that Nebuchadnezzar makes for himself. He's walking on the palace. He's looking out. I just want you guys to see he is back and forth, and back and forth. He's worshiping idols, he's praising God. He's worshiping idols, he's praising God. He's worshiping idols, he's praising God. Now, he's praising himself. Man, look at the kingdom that I have built. Look at all of my power on display. We saw it, man, I must be handsome. Must take a really humble guy to make this big of a change in my life. And what we see is that God carries out this punishment on Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 31, we see that this was the punishment that he received for his unwillingness to surrender. It says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live amongst the wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the most high is the ruler over the kingdom of men and he gives it to anyone he wants. 
Verse 33 says, at that moment, the sentence against Nebuchadnezzar was executed and he was driven away from people. He ate grass like the cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like the claws of a bird. I want you guys to see because of Nebuchadnezzar's unwillingness to surrender and to submit his life to the one true God, he has everything taken from him. This was the consequence for the sinful lifestyle that he was choosing to live and he bore the full weight of the penalty of his sin. Now I wanna be careful this morning because it's really easy for us to sit in the year 2023 as smart and as wise as we are and to look at a story like this of a king who is just so unwilling to surrender his life to the Lord and ends up losing everything for it. And it's easy for us to sit here and look at this and say, oh, what a dummy. I mean, you had so many opportunities. Why didn't you just do the one thing to save yourself? And it's easy for us to point fingers at a guy because we sit here and we think that we are so smart. But what I want us to realize, my friends, is that you and I are just like Nebuchadnezzar. Your life and my life are often marked by the fact that we are unwilling to surrender the things that God is calling us to. We're unwilling to give up the control that we want to hold on to in our lives and the fact that we want to be the God of our own lives. The scriptures say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I want to say this to you, my friends. Nebuchadnezzar is not unique. Nebuchadnezzar is a reflection, is a picture of your life and of my life. None of us are exempt from the thing that we are seeing him struggle with. This is the reality of our lives. So let's talk about this word sin. What is sin? Here's the definition of sin for you. Sin is anything that we say, think, or do that is outside of God's intention and desire for how we should live as his people. Sin is anything that we say, think, or do that is outside of God. And what we have to understand, my friends, is that when we sin, sin is an active rebellion against God. To sin against God is to be disobedient towards God. And we have to understand that the effects and the penalty of sin is serious. What sin does is sin separates us from God. Sin is the thing that holds us back, disconnects us from God, and in I think that in order for us to understand the depth of sin's effect in our lives, we've got to go back to the beginning where we see sin into the picture. Now in the book of Genesis chapter three, this is where we see sin enter the human story. Right, in Genesis chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the earth and everything in it, the plants, the animals, the birds, and then he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve. Says that God creates mankind in his image and they are created in perfect harmony with God. There is nothing separating Adam and Eve from God, but God gives them one command as they live out their days in the Garden of Eden. He says, You can eat from any tree that you want, but this one. And if you eat from this tree, you'll become aware of death and life and you will be separated from me. And this is what kind of how the story sets up. And because of a lie, that Adam and Eve believed that they knew what was best for their life. They chose to act in disobedience to God. They broke the one command that God gave. They wanted to be in charge and in control of their own lives. And from that moment on, 
all of mankind, all of humanity is now plagued with this thing called sin. See, at the root of the decision that Adam and Eve made was a decision and a desire that they wanted to be the God of their own lives. And this one moment of disobedience has affected all of creation and all people since that moment. Now here's the effect of sin. I've already said this, but I want to make sure we understand. Sin separates us from God, period. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from one another. Sin affects all things. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it talks about the effect of sin and how it's made its way into all creation. It says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so death has spread to all mankind because all people sin. Now, when we talk about sin and we talk about the Garden of Eden and this, this place where God created that was perfect, and he set Adam and Eve to live in it, but he set one tree in there that they weren't to eat from. I know that some of us can ask that question, why would God even give them the opportunity? Why would God even put that tree there in the first place, right? Like if God is loving, wasn't he setting them up, them up for failure? And this is what I want you guys to understand. God is a God of relationship. And in order for us to experience the truest form of relationship, people have to have the ability to choose. When we talk about God being a God of love, I mean, what kind of love is a forced love? Something that is forced is really no love at all. And if God were to not even give Adam and Eve the opportunity to make the decision to choose him, it wouldn't be true love. It would be forced. And because God is love, God has given us all the opportunity the decision to make for ourselves on do we want to choose to follow him with our lives. And this is the choice that we all have to make. God does not force us to choose him. God does not force us to love him, but he gives us the decision to make for ourselves. Now to get back to the effect of sin in our lives what we see in humanity, the reason that there is so much dissension and division and problems and fighting and hatred is because sin has woven its way in staining every part of this world. I don't know if you guys have spent much time with little kids. Anybody have like baby siblings in here? Okay, here, here's something interesting about kids. Nobody has to teach a kid to be selfish. There, there comes a point in a child's life where they just kind of naturally want to look out for themselves. We hear it in the word that they say, that's mine, right? When kids want what is theirs and they're looking out for their own interest, it's not something that was taught to them, it's instinctual. And this is evidence for us that sin has made its way into the most innocent of human beings. Sin is what marks our lives as people. And scripture affirms this. I want to read to you guys three different passages that affirm this idea that sin has made its way and plagued all of humanity. In 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 it says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word does not remain in us. Romans chapter 10 verse 10 says this, it says none is righteous, no not even one. Understand that no one seeks God and all have turned aside from him. 
Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the ways of this world and according to the prince of the power of darkness. These verses affirm this point that sin has made its way into all of humanity. And friends, it's important that we understand that we are not exempt from this. Sin is a present reality in every one of our lives and sin separates us from God. Now, why does sin separate us from God? We gotta talk about who God is. We talk about God being holy. Have you guys ever heard that? God is holy. To be holy means to be set apart. God is, God is, is not sinful. God is holy. He is perfect. Uh, he, he is the completion of all things. Like God is holy. He is set apart. He's unaffected by all of those things. In scripture, we read that God is light and in him, there is no darkness. The idea of God being light is God is the perfect uh, embodiment of perfection, of holiness, of blamelessness, of spotlessness. God is perfect. And because God is perfect and there is no darkness in him and there is no sin in him, God cannot look upon sin. And because we are sin-stained people, we have now been separated from God, meaning because of our sin, we cannot stand in the presence of God because we are utterly broken and marked by our sin. Friends, I want us to understand because of our sin, we have been separated from God. Romans chapter three, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter six, verse 23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. When we talk about sin, and we talk about sin in our lives being anything that is outside of God's intention for our lives in the way that we think, talk, or act, every time we sin, and we act outside of God's intention for our lives, I want you guys to understand that there is a penalty. There is a price to be paid for that act of rebellion. And what we deserve on the account of our rebellion and disobedience against God is death. Now, in the original Greek language, the word death uh, kind of implies a double emphasis. It means to die, die. Not only a physical death are we, do we deserve on the account of our sin, but a deeper spiritual death, an eternal separation from God, both here on this earth and for eternity. And this is what sin 